Hello, welcome to a new episode of Purposely Local, a space where we feature local businesses, shops, initiatives, and ideas that are shaping and transforming the new world of local. Our plan, as you know, is not to speak about how these businesses are doing or what is this business about. We will focus on the why it's local and purpose, all in the same podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of sharing some time with Theron Long. Theron and I uh, met via Launch Club. For those of you who doesn't know what Launch Club is, I, I think I could probably describe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Theron, that you, you, you've been active in Launch Club uh, for a while too. It's kind of like a Tinder for business, right? Yeah, a professional dating club. Exactly, right. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's even better. A professional dating club. <laughs> I love it. Anyway, so just to give you a little bit of a description, after you put your information and criteria to meet in Lunch Club, you choose some time slots available in the week, and then their AI platform set the meetings for you with new people during the week. Uh, you never know who's going to come. I mean, they send you an introduction of who is this person and, and kind of like their profile. But you get into all these conversations, and that's how actually Theron and I met. It was via Lunch Club, and we have a fantastic conversation that I'm going to try to replicate today if we can. Full disclosure, uh, I'm not an investor in Lunch Club. I, they're not paying for advertising. This is just a purely honest review on the product. It, it's, it's actually by invitation only. And if you are listening to this and you're intrigued about the platform, I'm super open to send you an invitation. Just email me at daniel.salcido at gmail.com and I can look at your profile and, and send you an invite. Even though that we will focus on purpose uh, and the why in this podcast, just for context, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on Theron. Theron has worked since... Uh, 2005 in the fashion industry, in companies like J. Crew, Uniqlo, as, as a director of visual merchandising. And then he moved later in his career into a creative director role, first in Paper Magazine and most recently on WW International. He's now also doing all kinds of different initiatives that we will talk about it too. Uh, but this is just a little bit of uh, reference on him. All right, so today, Theron and I are going to spend a lot of time speaking about what is body positivity, which is something that is strike from that conversation that him and I have back in the days in uh, a few months ago in, in Lunch Club. And I know uh, 100% that this is not something that he created, but it's something that I believe in my personal opinion, and that's why he's here, that is a local idea or concept that he actually cultivated successfully in his practice, at least for what he shared with me. And this is what he's here today. So welcome, Theron. Thank you for having me. I'm excited <laughs> to be here. Awesome. So let's uh, don't jump into this. Uh, I want to start a little bit with your childhood. So if you can tell me a little bit, where did you grow up and what memories do you have from your childhood today? I grew up in a small Mexican border town in the southeast corner of the state of Arizona. 7,000 people. Most people have not heard of this town. It's called Bisbee. It was a wonderful place to grow up. However, I never felt like I fit in there. I was growing up in a Mexican border town as a gay, white Mormon kid. So I really had a hard time identifying with other individuals in that community. And from a very early age, 
I had uh, watched MTV and I thought MTV was so cool. And I declared that I wanted to go where they made MTV. And it wasn't necessarily that I wanted to be on MTV, but I knew that that was a city that cultivated creative types. And I felt like I could go there and find other like-minded individuals. Now, even though I had this longing to go to New York and to leave the small town that I grew up, I definitely grew up in a very loving and supportive home. Uh, my, I had two parents that loved me dearly. I'm the oldest of five children. And I was always instilled with not only a deep-rooted sense of love, but that I could accomplish anything I wanted to. So I had lots of positive reinforcement in the home about you can follow your dreams and you can make it happen. Uh, it's interesting enough, I am actually a first-generation American. My father is from New Zealand and my mother is from England. And how we ended up in Arizona in a Mexican border town, that's another story, another episode. <laughs> but we did end up there. And, and so I am familiar with the immigrant experience. And it was through hard work and determination that I knew I was going to get out of that town. And for me, you know, being gay, um, especially in a conservative religion like Mormonism, it, it was hard. It was an issue that I had to wrestle with. So the idea of being the outsider and hearing messages that, you're not okay, that there's something wrong with you, is something that I heard from the outside world. Mm. Uh, within the home, you know, I wasn't identifying as gay as a young kid. And again, I felt like I was supported and loved, but it was really external messages, right? So we can talk about society or culturally that I was hearing these messages that something was wrong with me. And you internalize those things, I think, as a youth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you remember from those days, what were you passionate about it when you were a child? What exactly, I mean, what kind of activities were you doing that you were, you know, absolutely passionate about it? So um, as I was growing up, I was not athletically inclined. And in fact, um, obesity and weight management is an issue that runs in my family. And I was an overweight kid. Um, but what I did excel at were academics. And that was where I saw there was an out. That was something where I had the edge. And it was something my parents encouraged as well, because it was like, well, you're going to go to college one day. So pursuing academics and being good at that is something you should continue to focus on. So as a kid, I focused on academia because I was not um, athletically inclined. I was not good on the playground. You know, I was the kid um, in Wee in Little League that I was always out in right field you know, where I couldn't do no harm or foul in the game. <laughs> right. But I would be out there literally making daisy chains. And there were a couple of times when, you know, my mother would might scream from the, the bleachers, Theron, quit picking flowers and pay attention to the game. <laughs> I was picking flowers, but I didn't want her to, to call that out. Right, right. So I, I knew that um, academia was the way that I was going to get ahead. And of course, like a lot of kids, when you are bullied for whatever reason, and, and I was getting it, you know, for being feminine and then also being overweight, um, I found humor was a way to deflect. And so I also got into being funny. And that also led to theater. So performing, right? And because I was good at memorizing things, I could memorize scripts fairly easy. So I always wanted to be in the school productions. Any play that was coming up, a performance, talent show, you name it, I was signing up for that, you know? And, and that's sort of where I found uh, sometimes my tribe. I found other people that I could share with the drama in. 
and it was an escapism really from other aspects of my life that were a little bit more difficult for me. Wow, that's pretty, that's pretty interesting. I, I never thought you, you did theater when, when, you, when you were a child, but so what happened since then? I mean, you, you're super passionate. I, I mean, it sounds like you were very passionate about theater and, and you were doing all these things at school. When was that point that you realized, okay, now, you know, you saw MTV and you want to move to New York and what were you thinking about doing in, in, in New York? You, you already mentioned that you didn't want to be on MTV, uh, you know, necessarily, but what was your, your idea to be in New York? Do, do you have a plan in mind or what was the idea there? Yeah, I think let's go back to college. So I end up getting scholarships because I excelled at academia and I graduated salutatorian of my class. And when you're a small kid in a border town, you know, you get a lot of the scholarships. It's easy to sort of collect all those. And so I went to school on scholarship and I thought I was going to study economics because my father is an accountant. And I took one class and was like, no, I want to study theater. <laughs> I'm running for the theater department. So my degree is actually in acting. I have a, a Bachelor of Fine Arts in acting. Um, I went to Arizona State University on scholarship. And while I was studying theater, even though my emphasis was acting, you got to take the other disciplines. And I took a costume design class and it sort of clicked. It was that light bulb moment where things started to make sense to me. And I could apply an understanding of costume history to then be able to categorize art, right? Because what are they wearing? Or thinking about historical events, I could sort of think about the fashions and then I was able to create that genealogical timeline. Mm. So fashion started to come up for me while studying theater. And I actually had a fellow graduate student that knew I was excelling in the, th in the costuming class. And she asked me to design costumes for her thesis project. I said, wow, this is great, but I've never done it before. And she said, I know, but I hear you've got a thing about fashion now. So I'd love to work with you. So I agreed to do it. And then that year, I ended up winning the award for best costume design for wow. a graduate theater project. That's awesome. And that was like, wow, this is crazy. And then as a result of that, local theater companies uh, in the Phoenix area started reaching out to me. And before you knew it, I was working professionally as a costume designer while I was finishing my undergraduate degree at Arizona State University. Hmm. But the whole time, the goal is still to move to New York. So then I kind of have this freak out moment where it's like, wait, wait, this isn't my 15 minutes. I don't want to become <laughs> a famous costume designer in Arizona. So mm -hmm. I stopped the costume design and I focused all of my energy on moving to New York. But at that stage then, when I moved to New York, I knew my two passions at that point were theater and fashion. Okay. And what better town to move to if you love theater oh, yeah, and fashion? Totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. So according to your bio and, and reading through your experience, I know in your early days in New York City, you worked for, you did a lot of visual presentation for companies like Ralph Lauren, J. Crew, Lululemon, Victoria's Secret, Uniqlo. I mean, a, a lot of them. So there's a lot of people that can do visual presentations for these companies. But I'm pretty sure that there was something special about these presentations that you were doing, that they were different. And also, they were probably the reason why other companies start, you know, hired you for, to, to do the same thing, right? What do you think it was that touch that makes those visuals like so special that they were hiring you and hiring you again? Storytelling. I think it's all about the art of storytelling. You know, I think that's one of the the primal 
instincts of human beings. You know, it goes way back to even like cave um, artwork that that was humans trying to communicate with one another. And our shared stories are what bind us as human beings. And that's how we identify is through storytelling. And I think I learned the art of storytelling through theater. So I knew how to tell a story. I knew how to identify the different players, what the arc was, and how to communicate that visually through not only costumes, but set design, right? So when I started getting into window dressing or store visuals, I intrinsically understood the power of storytelling. And it was one of those things where, and I learned this um, and really honed this skill a lot with Ralph Lauren, who was a master storyteller, that you weren't just creating a look or a presentation, but as Ralph says himself, you're creating a story and a life. So even when I dressed the mannequins, they had names and they had stories behind them. There was a reason this woman was here in this outfit, in this moment. And when you start to fill in the blanks like that and create a whole story, then it becomes a much more enriching experience. And like I said, people identify with that. So the consumer identified with it. And so therefore what happened in retail is the stuff started to sell. The stuff I would put in the windows or put on the mannequins was selling because there was that identification with the story. Yeah, that makes total sense. And now I see why you move from all these visual presentations to a creative director role, because at the end of the day, you were not in charge of executing these visuals. You, your, your mind was going beyond that. You were thinking about all these different elements. And that's how you landed then your, your first positions as creative director, right? That's right. Yeah. I actually had friends that worked at Paper Magazine, and I knew that they were looking for a creative director. And as I imagined what that role was, I saw an opportunity for me to be creative in that role. And at that time, this is 2015, you know, fast fashion was uh, like heading in strong into the marketplace. And I felt like some of the romance or the art of storytelling was leaving the retail industry. And I'm a creative person, first and foremost, right? So I had to find creative expressions and the opportunity to tell stories. So when I knew that paper was looking for a creative director role, I said, well, I don't have maybe direct publishing experience, but I understand storytelling. I have these hard skills. So I actually requested a meeting uh, with Drew Elliott um, and went in and sat down and said, look, here's my hard skills. This is what I have to offer. I would love to work with this brand. And I think we could do some really great work together. And I'm fortunate that he said yes. And I was able to then transition into a creative director role. Wow, that's amazing. And did you, they were looking for a position at that time or did you just show up there and tell you, tell them, you tell him your skills or, or how was that moment? Yeah, they were looking for a position, oh, okay. but it was presented like, if you know anybody, let us uh, know. I see, and I see. It actually started me thinking about who would be good for this. And eventually I decided I would be good for this. <laughs> right, right. So there is a quote that I saw in your bio that actually, uh, uh, you know, give me a lot of uh, curiosity and I, and I want to hear more from you on this. And I, I'm going to share this quote with our listeners. So you have a quote here that it says, I know my work is good when it doesn't just join the conversation, but rather becomes the conversation. Can you give me an example in your life or your professional career when you actually didn't join the conversation, but you became the conversation? Yeah, um, I've got a great example of that. When I was working at Paper Magazine, 
Um, we and keep in mind, I was not on the editorial side. So Paper Magazine, like a lot of media companies, has an in-house creative agency that does a lot of work for clients. And a lot of clients are interested in just sort of the thinking that Paper Magazine, the creativity and the talent that's there, not necessarily the name. So I would do a lot of work that would be sort of white label, you know, wouldn't even um, ever display the paper name to it. And one of the projects that we worked on there was for Sky Vodka. And Sky Vodka was interested in repositioning their product in the marketplace as uniquely American. It's actually one of only four vodkas that's made in the United States. You know, most vodka is made overseas, like in Russia or Poland and places. But Sky Vodka is actually, it was designed and created and still crafted in the United States. So they wanted to play up this message. So we worked on a campaign that was called Proudly American. But this was now around 2016 when we certainly had a new administration coming in. And so there was sort of this idea that, is this a time among certain people in the population to be proud to be an American. And they felt strongly, and and we agreed as well at Paper Magazine, that it is okay to be proudly American, but let's redefine what American means. And so it was really focusing on sort of the new face of America, right? So it wasn't necessarily a conservative or limited demographic, but that there are lots of different types of people who can identify as proudly American, and let's celebrate those differences. And so with that campaign, we started featuring, you know, people of color. We started featuring members of the LGBT community. We started picking out food influencers and other people that were working within the space as activists to really say, this is what Sky Vodka believes are true Americans, and these are the people that we want to celebrate and tell their stories, because just like our spirit, they are proudly American. And that campaign is still running to this day. So that is still something that they are running with. It's been going on for years. And I'm so pleased to see, I'm obviously no longer working on it, but they continue with that message. And it's one that I think uh, still resonates with consumers. It's, it's a, I mean, it's incredible. I was just going to say that it's so relevant today. I mean, you, you could totally pitch this idea today and they will do it because it's so relevant even today. What was the year again that you did this? I, I know you're saying it, but I just want to remember. I want to think we started that in like 2016. We started talking about it. And then it was into 2017, 18 that we got going now. So I think it's on like now. Four or five years or ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Wow. That's great. That's awesome. The other thing I, I also saw in your, uh, in the is, is the focus of your creative direction. You mentioned on your LinkedIn that you work in the intersection of entertainment, fashion, wellness, pop culture, digital media on a global scale. If you hear that at at, at the first reaction, you say, wow, that's a lot. So what is that intersection? I'm curious, uh, what is exactly that intersection that you're talking about? Well, I think it's a lot of different things, but I think that's also indicative of our lives now. You know, I think that Consumers look for brands that are an extension, a natural, authentic extension of themselves, right? So we want to be associated with brands that share our values. And those values are intersected. Um, I'll use the example of just like health and wellness. You know, before, I think people would sort of create these silos where 
I am a, a gym bunny or an athlete and that's all I do, or I'm a cook or a chef and that's all I do, or I am an accountant or doctor, whatever it is, but that was it. And what we're seeing now, it's like, I can be more than one thing. So I can enjoy health and wellness. I can be a runner or I can also be a creative director at the same time while I'm being a parent. And I'm looking for brands that are going to work within my lifestyle that aren't separate, but work together. So that intersection comes from, you know, not only the products that I buy, but the activities I participate in and also to sort of the causes that I give my money towards, things that I support, you know. And I think that we're seeing more and more of that intersection, uh, especially with this pandemic when it comes to health and wellness. Yep. And people are now saying it's not something separate. It's got to be part of my life. It's got to be integrated into it. So people are recognizing that more. So let's talk about body positivity. What I remember about that conversation that we had is that for me was a concept that became very interesting of course, for obvious reasons of, of the startup that I'm involved now, the, that I co-founded in the in the fashion tech industry. But for so many people and for the brands that you work for, can you explain what is body positivity and how did you apply that body positivity in the experiences that we discussed during, during that conversation? Yeah, I, I think the simplest way to des describe body positivity and this movement is that it really is advocating that individuals are encouraged to love themselves to the fullest while accepting all of their physical traits. So initially started out and was really a focus on weight. And it was about people size, right? Because there's a lot of prejudice towards obese people or, you know, we'll just say fat people. But I think as it's evolved, this movement, it's now come to encompass a lot of other things besides just weight. It also includes gender. Um, it also includes LGBT. Uh, it also includes race. It also includes disabilities, right? And so we're seeing now that it's really more of an umbrella for accepting and sort of loving the skin that you're in. You've heard different brands pull up that tagline before, but that's really what it's all about. And do you remember, so, and, and why do you think uh, body positivity is important in, in the today's world? Well, I think the, one of the main reasons is about self-care and self-love. And it's being able to nurture that self-esteem because as we know, the most attractive thing is self-confidence. And self-confidence can also be the determining factor for an individual Um, in regards to their success. If you don't believe that you're worth it or that you can do it, you don't even stand a chance. So it's really encouraging people to love who they are and, and accept that fully. You know, what we're talking about a lot of times are aesthetics. And, and there are certain things that come in with physical limitations, absolutely. But for the sake of conversation, let's just say we're talking about aesthetics. And so we're talking about beauty standards. And beauty standards historically have sort of been a construct of society, right? It's a collective set of values and beliefs and behaviors that establish certain physical attributes as being more desirable than others. You know, we say we think blonde is better than brown. I'm not saying I personally do, but I'm saying that could argue that's the standard of beauty or thin is better than fat. And so when we're looking at this social construct, We've got to make sure that we separate that 
from the individual's confidence and their own self-worth. And far too often, we are sending out messages in the media and in marketing that are a very narrow representation of what beauty standards are acceptable. And so there's a big movement, the body positivity movement, um, underfoot to try and change this and say, hey, this is not okay. We, everybody does not need to look like this. Let's say I'm, a, I'm an owner of a local fashion brand or I'm, a, I'm just someone in the fashion industry right now that I, I'm listening to you now uh, and I say, wow, this makes total sense, right? How would you think they could apply this body positivity concept? Let's talk in the context of a fashion brand. What can I do as a fashion brand to apply this body positivity on my message, on my storytelling, on, or even on, on the way that I produce my clothing, on... Uh, how do you think you can connect that movement with my brand? Number one thing is expand your size offering. That's the first and foremost is especially let's talk about women because I think that women disproportionately experience uh, challenges related to body image, uh, although it certainly is prevalent within the male population as well. And for you know non-binary gender identifying individuals too, but let's start with women. Most size ranges are two to 12. And what is that based off of? That is an arbitrary size, right? And a lot of times those are based off of white fit models. So we're not even addressing that different races and ethnicities have different body types, right? So a two to 12 white woman's body is not gonna fit everybody. So it's expanding that range, especially when you look at something like the statistic that the average size of a woman in the United States right now is a size 14. That's the average size. And most brands are only going up to size 12. So the first thing is to expand um, the size offering. You've got to have products that cater to a broader audience. But the second one, I think, is in the messaging and in the representation. You hear this a lot. I think it's come up the last year a lot with the Black Lives Matters movement. Representation matters. So it's showing different diverse models in your campaigns in your marketing that communicate that your product does apply to more than just the typical white European skinny girl. Yeah, wow, that, that's incredible. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm gonna take this part of the podcast and just have it as a clip. And since I'm speaking with so many local fashion brands now because of my startup, I'm definitely gonna put this video to all of them because it's, it's really, really interesting what you're saying. And I think it's very, it's definitely gonna improve their businesses because at the end of the day, you are acknowledging the new customer that we have now uh, and that they have as well. And if they want to sell more clothing so that they want to be relevant right now, they need to definitely apply this uh, body positivity mindset in their businesses, right? Absolutely. And you know, what I think is really interesting is I've seen some brands that are now actually even uh, addressing and modifying the nomenclature when it comes to sizing. So instead of talking about small, medium, large, extra large, I see different brands that are using terms like body geography, or they're actually using new terms that just apply to a size range that maybe doesn't carry the stigma that extra large or double XL does. You know, a lot of people cringe when they hear that. And, and some people really struggle to even buy an accurate fit because they don't want clothing with that size in the label. So uh, a great example of this, I think, is there is a, um, an, a lingerie company that's based out of LA that's called um, Cantique LA. 
and they actually talk about lingerie, and this is for non-binary, uh, a gender spectrum kind of thing, but they talk about body geography, right? So it's sort of looking at the way that your body's shaped instead of saying you're a two, a four, or a large, or an extra large. And, and I think that's amazing to start using those types of terms, you know? Another one that I like is a small brand out of LA called Superfit Hero, and they specialize in activewear for larger sized individuals who are often marginalized. And that can be a deterrent to even try and exercise because I can't find clothing that fits my body type. So they specialize in clothing for a broader range of consumers. And they use terms like earth fit or water fit or galaxy fit. So you don't have to worry about these actual size uh, names that people sometimes have these hangups or preconceived notions about. And I think that's amazing. Who doesn't want to wear the galaxy fit? I mean, that sounds yeah. pretty awesome and empowering. Right. You know? Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all those examples because I think it's good for, again, thinking from the, from the point of view of a fashion brand, it's good to see that other brands are doing it and how they are, are doing it, which is very good that you're bringing up all these examples. Uh, this is exactly what I why I define this body positivity as a local concept or idea that you clearly know what what is about, how to apply it, and how this movement is going. And that's why I wanted to, to have this conversation with you. Thank you for sharing all this. When was the first time that you heard the word local, and in what context? Uh, I would imagine that I first came. Um, in touch with or understood local as it, as it uh, pertained to food, I would imagine, uh, the idea of eating locally, right? So that you were eating food that was cultivated within a certain radius of where you lived. Uh, and then I think, and, and that would have been like 80s, right? I learned about uh, food movements uh, starting in the 80s and this idea that you should try to eat a little bit more local. And then what happened for me is uh, while I was in college, I actually worked at Buffalo Exchange, which is a resale clothing chain that started in Arizona. And I worked there to support myself all through college. And that was a formidable experience. I have friends to this day that I met at Buffalo Exchange. I cannot say enough about that experience and the community that that brand has cultivated. And the whole concept is to recycle fashion. So there was an environmental message there But it was all based off of local communities because you were only selling clothing that was actually present in that community, right? You were dependent on people within that uh, geographic area to bring the clothing in and to recycle it and upcycle it too. So I slowly began to see how local could apply to fashion and apparel while I was in college. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Can you share what was the latest local experience? It doesn't have to be in the fashion industry that you recently had that you want to maybe uh, share with me. And, and this could be all the way from, oh, I, I don't know, I bought this salad from this local place here or I went to this deli and I found this whatever uh, food that I, I never tried before or something like that. Uh, it could be from any industries. I'm really big on supporting uh, local artisans. Okay. Um, and so I think it's important to support the local art community. Um, and I can tell you uh, just this past weekend, actually, so I identify as gay and I'm in a rela long-term relationship with my boyfriend who's also gay. 
And he actually does a podcast about queer creatives that focuses just on individuals within the queer community who are doing creative stuff. And so this past weekend, we went to an art fair where they had local uh, queer identifying artists there selling their wares. And so we went and we picked up some fun accessories and some candles and some artwork. And it was an outdoor uh, fair that was over in Williamsburg. And that was really cool to do that. Um, and those are supporting those artisans and creatives uh, that are here based in New York City. And I think that cool. was cool. So what I'm currently doing uh, with those type of experiences, and that's why I was motivated to start this podcast, is to basically share those experiences more openly on, on social media. Like, for example, if I had that experience like you did, I would probably post some pictures on my LinkedIn or, or Instagram or whatever. And I put, you know, support local and I click, I put the link to their artists. In my case, when I do it with food, I actually write a review on Yelp or, or Google. And, and I think that if we can all get into this habit of doing this, Whenever we can, you know, I do it every week, but you don't have to, of course, we can probably create an impact and we can have more people relate to this type of uh, experiences, right? The other day, for example, I was surprised. I went to this water reservoir that is close to my new house and I decided to walk around. I take some pictures and say, wow, this is like, you know, a piece of nature in the middle of the city. And I put a review on Google without asking for anything. You know, I was just inspired and I did it. And a couple of days ago, I got a notification from Google that my my review has have been seen by more than a thousand people. I'm like, wow, you know, like, and, and that's why I, I said, you know, these these small things that we can do every day, they can make an impact. So what I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, uh, whenever we publish this episode, if you can share that experience via social media, and then you know that that's it. Well, th that's what I have. I don't know if you want to share anything about you uh, more or anything that you think I, I have, uh, we haven't mentioned. Um, uh, you know, the only thing I, I think I want to share, uh, and I'm going to, this is being local because this is uh, being a local New Yorker. And I've okay. heard a lot of people uh, talk about uh, the fear that New York is over. And, and, you know, I moved here like 22 years ago And I love this city as much as I did when I first moved here. And New York is definitely not dead. And this city has been built on reinvention. We've seen it happen time and time again. And one of the organizations that I've recently gotten involved with is New York Forever. And it's a nonprofit that's actually creating a large community that's um, giving back. And so you sign up, you take the pledge to invest in New York City, And then you actually are given lots of volunteer examples of how you can get involved and support the local communities. And they break it down by borough. And I think that's so exciting to figure out, hey, there's a food bank that I can go help out this week. Or this is a, a mural painting exercise. I can go participate in that. And I think that's so important that we look for those local opportunities where we can give back to our community. And then along those lines, because New York has reinvented itself, I believe there will be a creative zeitgeist that we will experience in New York City, maybe similar to like what we saw in the late 80s. Creatives will come here. It is a town that is, uh, fosters creativity and ambition. And I think starting towards the end of this year and definitely into 2022, you're going to see incredible creative ideas coming out of New York City that are going to solve the world's problems. 
And I think it's an exciting time to be in New York. And I have not given up on this town and would encourage everybody else to still invest in New York City because as far as I'm concerned, it's still the greatest city on earth. Oh my God. After hearing that, I think you should run for mayor. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you very much, Theron. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a, a very, very amazing, uh, an amazing conversation. And I think uh, uh, there's a lot to, to get here from in terms of what, you know, body positivity, local and, and all the experiences that you have. How can people get in touch with you? Uh, I know you, last time we spoke, you left the, your, your previous job and you kind of in the middle of, a, I don't know if you want to mention anything about that or how can people get in touch with you today? Yeah, uh, so I am doing an independent route and I am uh, working on lots of different projects, uh, some research projects, um, doing some consulting work, some brand strategy work that um, I can share that in the future as they're about future state and sort of solving for these problems that I think consumers are faced with today. But you can find me on social media. Theron NYC is my handle. I'm on LinkedIn and I would love to continue the conversation. And if anybody wants to reach out with further questions or talk about collaborating, totally open to it. Awesome. And I'm pretty sure that if I reach out to you in following seasons, we have new topics to talk about for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you very much, Theron. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Theron Lon at Purposely Local. I hope you enjoyed the same way I did the first time I heard about this concept and this amazing conversation we had back in the days in Lunch Club. If you have any ideas or any suggestions that you want to send to me or anything that is happening locally in your neighborhood, feel free to email me at daniel.salcedo, S-A-L-C-E-D-O at gmail.com. This is my personal email and I'm super happy to hear or to read about anything locally that is happening in your neighborhood. Thank you very much for listening and I hope to see you back in our next episode of Purposely Local.